Hello and welcome to Humans of Open Source, where we talk to the people working in open source software and hear their stories. I'm your host, Sean Chen, and in this episode, we're going to be talking with Chris Kreitschow. Chris is a contributor to the TypeScript community, but he's also contributed in the past to the Rust open source community, in large part through his podcast, New Rustation, which aimed to teach a programming language through the podcast medium. Chris also earned his master's in divinity and is an advocate for approaching software and software communities through the human lens, which made him a pretty natural fit for me to talk to on this podcast. I also wanted to add a quick disclaimer about sound in this particular conversation. I know it wasn't great, especially compared to Chris's audio, which sounds stellar, but I hope you'll forgive me. In the future, it's definitely going to be a lot better. So without further ado, let's head on over to the conversation. So Chris, thanks so much for coming on and agreeing to talk to me. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off talking about how I found you. It was through Neuro Station, and this was back in, I want to say 2017, where I had quite a long commute. Right now I'm living in LA, and I had about an hour and a half commute both ways. It was a killer, to say the least. And Neuro Station was definitely one of the podcasts I listened to. Didn't quite get me all the way through. Nope, but it I wouldn't have. It <laughs> I was aiming for the short commute, but that one definitely, yeah, that sounds like LA commutes as I have heard of them. So thankfully, my life is a lot better now working <laughs> a fully remote job. That's how I found you. Started listening a little bit to some of your other stuff, the resources you sent me. I really liked the RustConf talk, especially the what you said about the humanism aspect. Mm. of, you know, working in open source and growing communities there. Yeah. Your background really fascinates me. My wife and I go to a Presbyterian church. Mm. I've met some software developers who are working in kind of like older technologies, enterprise technologies, but like someone working at the forefront of of newer technologies like yourself, I've never really encountered anyone like that mm. in, in church. Yeah. So yeah, you know, hearing your background when you mentioned it in your podcast, I was like, oh, that's really cool. I think one thing I'd really be interested in hearing more about is like, I guess how you kind of consolidate this, this dual nature. There's more to that story there. Yeah. Yeah. My wife would laugh to, to hear the question because as much as theology and software are two very disparate fields, there are many more. Part of my problem is always picking just one thing to focus on for a while. Hmm. But I ended up in software through a, semi-non-traditional path in the first place. And I think that factors in for me to a lot of how I think about these things. I did my undergraduate work in physics, not in software. And I ended up in software because I decided at that point I didn't want a physics PhD. And I had done some computational neuroscience research, my capstone project my senior year. And coming in that way, I was exposed very early on to open source software because the stuff I was working with in a physics undergraduate program was all open source software. It was Fortran, of all things, very common in the computational science world still. And so I always had a deep sense of the importance and value of the shape of 
software communities. The The next thing I was picking up was PHP and jQuery and things like that. And the difference in various communities at the point when I was learning was striking. It remains striking, I think. Different communities have a very different sense of how welcoming they are, who their target audience is, what their focus is. And those things stuck out to me early on. The responses on forums about obscure G4Tran compiler errors often amounted to RTFM, read the dang manual. And that was really unhelpful and frustrating for someone who was saying, I I don't know what any of the words in the manual even mean. I can type man G4Tran, but I, I don't know how to make sense of that. I need earlier. I need back before that. Please, please help. And while neither the PHP nor the JavaScript communities, as I encountered them at the time, were exemplary. They were much better. There were many more resources aimed at people who didn't know what they were doing already. And that experience stuck with me. So that was the first piece of the puzzle. The second was that both during college and after college, I began thinking a lot about the relationship of faith and technology, the relationship between faith and work more generally, and therefore the relationship between faith and my work specifically. And so as I was working as a software developer, what did that mean? And there are a lot of ways that cashes out, I think. One of them simply being do a good job wherever you are. And so maybe that's a very boring line of business application written in Java or .NET. And maybe it's a cutting edge piece of tech written in Rust or Elixir or prologue or whatever else. But wherever you are, whatever you're doing, doing your work well was one of the first pieces. But there's also, I referred, as you mentioned, my Rust Belt Rust talk, I I quoted Jesus in referring to how we ought to treat the people around us, how we ought to think of others, putting them ahead of ourselves, and so on. And thinking about what that looks like in software has a lot of variations, And in the context of open source, I think it means looking more like Rust has aimed to look or Ember has aimed to look or any number of other communities I could point to. Those are the ones I've been the most engaged with versus how the Linux kernel development used to look. And it's actually gotten much better in the last couple of years. There's been a a meaningful shift there. Linus Torvalds kind of famously had a a wake-up call and realized, as people close to him told him, no, this is actually a problem. You're being abusive. And there's been a really important and significant shift there. So I, I couch that in historical terms. But because I'm a Christian, when I'm working in the context of an open source community, there's a kind of what I would describe as Christian humanism there of seeing the person on the other side of that GitHub issue or that bug tracker ticket or whatever it else might be as someone who's deserving of being treated with dignity and respect as being someone who is, at the end of the day, above all, not just another software developer, not just a source of frustration as they prove difficult to work with on an issue or whatever else, because that does happen in open source, but ultimately as a human being and someone therefore made in the image of God and therefore worth dignity, therefore worth treating with respect, therefore being kind to, and and that goes all the way down to sometimes when you have to close a pull request or you have to say, hey, you're out of line in moderation context or whatever else. So that was kind of the big frame for me. The one thing I would add to what I said a couple of years ago in that talk versus how I would talk about it now 
is to say that precisely because of that dynamic and the human factors involved in open source development, I think I understated something important there and overstated something else important there, which is I made a point in that talk about open source being a place where everyone can contribute, and that's something I would still affirm, and being a place where there's more work to do than people to do it. And that's also something I would still affirm. But that latter point leads into a factor that I don't think I had really begun considering in earnest and certainly not seriously enough then, which is that in general, open source is also a matter of people's free time. I'm, I get paid now somewhat to do some open source work, and I'm really grateful for that. But for most people doing open source work, it's something they're doing in their evenings, on their weekends, etc. And that thing I said that there's help needed, and you should help if you can, while that's true to some extent, maybe even to a large extent, I think we also need to do more and better work about thinking about the economic impact of that, thinking about the way that plays out when when you say that to someone who's a single parent or who's helping lift their entire family out of a poverty situation, or we've had some pretty serious things hit our family in the last couple of years with mm-hmm. illness and things those ways, and you don't know when you're standing up in front of a crowd saying that to people, to what extent you might actually be making heaping guilt on someone of there's work to be done and I should be doing it, when in point of fact, maybe what you should be doing is chilling out and taking care of your family and not burning yourself out, not burning your family out, and so on. And there's a lot more that could be said in that direction around the economics of open source that I'm really grateful to people who've been pushing really hard on in the last few years and noting that, no, asking for free labor and sustaining the work of mega corporations like Amazon or Google or LinkedIn and Microsoft for whom I work, asking people to do that for free on the side, there, there are some, there are some problems there, actually. And I think a sufficiently robust Christian humanism as applied to open source would actually do a better job of articulating that than I was able to do almost three years ago now. That absolutely resonates with me a lot. I, I teach as my day job. Mm. And so one of the open source communities that wasn't a good spot for me to contribute to is a platform called exorcism, which Mm -hmm. is uh, specifically a a language learning platform. And so helping out with their rush track is, for example, one thing that I do some nights when I go and play video games after work, (laughs) I have that nagging feeling in the back of my mind to be like, I I could be doing something productive. I could be contributing. I could be writing open source code. Right. How do you reckon with that? It's, you know, I, I think it's probably something that's very widespread. And for me, a lot of where the impetus for this podcast even came from to even try to start this was Nadia Eggball's book. Yep. Uh, I was Roads actually going to refer to exactly that. Reading that and reading about the economics. Yeah, it really does shine, you know, a, a light on some of the things that, again, I feel like we have to to reckon with as an open source community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we need to make more of a, do a better job of, as you were saying, realizing this is people's, you know, blood, sweat and tears and not only right. their blood, sweat and tears, but like their free time, blood, sweat and tears. Right. 
And, you know, how many people are working on open source because they succumb to that guilt and are like, you know, I just power through because they they feel like they need to be productive instead of yeah actually doing it because it's like i i want to do it yeah i think that maybe goes double in the american context perhaps in particular the silicon valley context where mm. there's a tendency culturally to measure human worth in human output especially economically useful output and mm. i think that is profoundly distortive of many things. I think it also just misses the fact that there are many goods in life that aren't reducible to your output and your production. The time I spend with my children is not something that even should be couched in economic terms. And the time I spend with my wife should not be framed as an economic transaction. And the ways that I invest in my local community will sometimes have economic aspects to them, but sometimes they won't. And we we shouldn't value the ones that do have economic aspects more highly. I think that comes down to our emphasis on economics as the primary driver of culture at this point in a lot of ways. But I also think it comes down to the fact that maybe especially in contexts influenced by Silicon Valley and otherwise large software cultures, we prize measurement and measurability. And this ends up leading us to think that things that can't be measured don't matter. And that that actually has some really pernicious and profound negative externalities and consequences in software development, because there are things that you can't actually directly measure that matter that come down to things like user experience and that come down to sometimes the thing you can measure, if you measure it, will lead you to do the wrong thing. One thinks here of optimizing for user engagement on a social media platform, and that can lead you into really bad spots where you're perfectly happy to inflate the traction that lies get on your social media platform, whether that's Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever, because it drives user engagement and that drives ad revenue and you end up in that vicious cycle. But that's measurable. A user being happier because they read three entries in their feed and felt satisfied with their friends having gotten seeing some update from their friends and then being done is not a thing you can measure, even though by any real reckoning with how people are healthy and meant to work, reading three stories and getting off is certainly better than the the term I've heard come into use over the past few months with all the COVID stuff of doom scrolling through Twitter. It, that's unhealthy. It's bad for you, but you yeah. can't measure that badness in any direct or meaningful way. And so that combination of an econometricalized, to make up a word, and a measurement-oriented culture leads us to value these things and leads us into this notion that we are our productivity, this notion that if I just ship that one more PR, I'll be worth something. And the reality is you... To, to counter a number of things that might have been implied by the things I said in that talk a few years ago, you, you won't. There's goodness in helping people, but there's also a goodness in shutting your computer down and going and hanging out with your family or with friends or serving in a homeless kitchen or any number of other things that don't, quote, contribute to the bottom line and are separate from software. And I say that as somebody who really likes getting to work on open source software. But I think our 
communities need that nuanced and careful way of framing it that says this is a good. It's not the only good. It's not the supreme good. It's mm. it's something you can sink your identity into and really become a, a god to you, a thing you worship of mm. one more PR, one more thumbs up, one more whatever, rather mm. than this is a good, serve others through that good, but don't let it be a totalizing good. Yeah, and I definitely think, at least from my experience in Rust's community in particular, I think it seems like the attitude there, the values that people try to champion really do kind of bring that to the forefront. Yeah. Um, I haven't had, frankly, too much experience in other open source communities. The little experience I had in the JavaScript open source community a number <laughs> of years ago when I was also kind of first getting into it. You know, I, I think I would mirror what you said. It wasn't exemplary. It it worked probably okay. You know, it got by. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, oh man, I'm remembering when, uh, I think when Dino launched recently, mm -hmm. and I think there was some drama about them not putting in like a code of conduct for contributing. Mm. And I think they just said like, just don't be an asshole, basically. <laughs> like, was like the, I, maybe I'm misquoting, but I think it was probably something along that yeah. line. And, you know, just, just assuming that that would be okay when, right. I think with with Rusko in the opposite direction and and really enumerating out a pretty specific code of conduct, I guess humans just need that. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I've found interesting in my interactions in both the Rust and Ember JS communities is that because there's some clear expectations, there's actually room for people of very very different backgrounds and very different beliefs to work effectively together. So I may. Mm fairly theologically and therefore in many ways socially conservative Christian. Mm. And in the context of Rust, I was friendly and well acquainted with people with whom I would disagree about everything from the nature of what lifestyles I and they both thought were good or bad down to like literally the nature of reality itself and everything in between. Like what should we do or not do politically? What should we do or not do sexually? What should we do or not do on almost any issue we would disagree. And yet having some clear boundaries spelled out about like, this is not acceptable. You don't attack people for their sexual orientation. You don't attack people for their religious beliefs. You don't attack people for this. And here's how it will be moderated on down the line meant that I could sit down across from somebody like that and have a really good, robust discussion, understanding that, yeah, even in that kind of a space, there are political and economic and social outworkings of those things. And yet by having some clear delineations and a good code of conduct and good moderators who enforce it well, at no point did I feel like, well, I can't, I can't participate in this or whatever. Mm. No, to the contrary, it actually made it much easier to contribute and and work well together with people with whom we did have substantial disagreements. I mean, it also helps when you have substantial disagreements on open source design questions, like how do we how do we do this? Rust error handling is not at all a contentious issue. The Rust module system is not at all a contentious. For anyone who's not followed closely along with Rust, both of those are some of the most contentious issues that have ever come up in the history of Rust and its language design development. And mm. talk about contributors to burnout. Those discussions have been serious contributors to burnout for some people along the way, but generally not. And 
in the majority not because of flaming and hostility. Unfortunately, there has been some of that in some of those. But in general, having a clear code of conduct actually helps keep those things workable. And don't be a jerk is a nice framing in a lot of ways. Like, it, it seems nice. It's simple. But it's wildly, massively open to, inter- like, am I being a jerk mm-hmm. or am I not mm-hmm. being a jerk? Absolutely. Maybe I, I need some prayers. I, I know someone who's trying to kick off uh, an error handling working group. Godspeed. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I'm going to be looking to help them out as kind of like my next step to getting more into Rust open source there and actually helping to... Because I've never actually delved into like the compiler or the language design or anything yeah. like that. That stuff's been very intimidating. But I guess the next thing I wanted to then touch on was what is your involvement with Rust now since New Rust Station mm-hmm. ended? Like, is that taken a bit of a backseat or, you know, what is your level of involvement there now? Yeah, I did pull back a fair bit in part because my time commitments shifted to other other projects and other things. And I still follow Rust fairly closely, but I haven't been actively participating other than to dip into an internals thread here and there and uh, the occasional comment on a GitHub issue. I did work the first six months I was employed at LinkedIn, so roughly the first six months of 2019. I worked on an open source project written in Rust with development sponsored by LinkedIn. We use it a bunch internally called Volta, and that's a tool chain manager for JavaScript. So it helps you robustly manage your node version, your package manager, so Yarn or NPM, and there's work being done to support PNPM as well. And then not just on a global level in the same way that something like NVM or NodeEnv would do, but also having robustly reproducible systems locally so that you can, in your package.json, use Volta to pin a specific node and yarn version, and therefore be able to share that easily amongst a team of developers across an organization, etc. So the app I work on every day, we have a Volta managed version of that. And in the midst of that, I just got to work quietly on an open source project written in Rust. And it wasn't really directly contributing to the Rust project in any sense or the Rust ecosystem, but it's just a project that happens to be written in Rust because it was a good fit for it. We wanted something where we could absolutely minimize the impact that this tool being in your workflow would have on the speed of running your tools. We want it to basically be invisible from your perspective. That as an end user, you just type node or yarn or whatever. And from your point of view, it's as though we weren't there, weren't in the way. And so Rust was a great fit for that. Something like Go might also have been. And that was a really wonderful opportunity where we were small enough as a project, and in many ways still are, that we get good open source input, and there are lots of people using it out there in the world, not just LinkedIn, but we weren't getting barraged or slammed by people. And so it was that nice balance of a project that was big enough to get traction and provide real-world benefits to people outside of our particular use case, and get feedback and get contributions back from that, while not being subject to the just sheer weight of... I mean, you look at the number of issues that go across GitHub for Rust on a daily basis, or even large projects written in Rust, Tokyo, or something like Rocket, or 
anything like that. And those just become overwhelming to think about trying to manage. And we were in that sweet spot where we had open source help, but it wasn't overwhelming to manage. And I could, you know, block out one day every month or two where I would go through and triage issues that were untriaged. And that was fine. Whereas you need daily, sometimes hourly triage on those massive projects. Mm. And at this point, my open source work is much more focused on Ember and on TypeScript. Mm. And I'm kind of embarking on a lot of work over probably the next six months to a year on nailing down some things in that space because TypeScript ships almost as often as Rust does. Uh, TypeScript has moved recently to a quarterly release cadence they were doing bi-monthly before that so not quite as fast as rust's every six weeks release train but typescript also has a very different philosophy about ideas like semantic versioning so where rust tries to be backwards compatible and says that the only intentionally allowed breaking changes are for things that are fixing soundness bugs in the compiler fixing things that shouldn't have compiled but did and you know, saying they don't compile now. TypeScript takes the different philosophy, which I think is defensible, but I disagree profoundly with, that every change to a compiler is technically a breaking change, so deal with it. We're not doing semantic versioning. Mm. And therefore, for example, the current latest version of TypeScript is 3.9. The upcoming release is 4.0, and that's just because 4.0 is the next decimal number after 3.9. Okay. That's a very different strategy, obviously. Mm. And meanwhile, I work on Ember.js projects, and Ember takes Semver just as seriously as Rust does. And therefore, meshing those two is an interesting and difficult problem, and building tooling that can actually bring those two philosophies together is one of the biggest places where there's a lot of interest at LinkedIn in using TypeScript, Mm. and we have a lot of Ember apps For us to do that effectively at the scale we operate at, where we have hundreds of JavaScript developers across many apps, and they need to be able to do their work without experiencing breakage from TypeScript types got changed by an enthusiastic contributor to the open source definitely typed project, but it just happened to land and there was a miss on something because there wasn't enough type test coverage or something like that. And now all of a sudden, all of the apps written in TypeScript at LinkedIn are experiencing breakage. Like we can't have that. And so, and and likewise, we can't have a situation where apps are just stuck on a particular version of TypeScript because something changed in the TypeScript compiler and there's no path forward to upgrading. So we're thinking about, and I'm working on building things that let us do stable paths forward so that we can get the many benefits of TypeScript, of which I've long been a partisan. I really like the language. But while also supporting hundreds of developers and keeping their workflow experience stable in the same way that, frankly, you would expect from working on Objective-C or Swift for our iOS platforms or for working in Java or Kotlin on our backend and native platforms or whatever else. We need those kinds of stability guarantees. So I'm working on those things, and it's a very different world 
from the Rust ecosystem, both in terms of the kind of things we're solving and in terms of who's involved. You know, in the Rust ecosystem, admitting that you like working on JavaScript is the one place where you're apt to start getting hate from a bunch of people who really like Rust. And they're like, wait, I don't want any JavaScript running in my browser tab ever. You're like, okay, maybe I understand where you're coming from, but tone it down a little. It's okay. Uh, And meanwhile, I'm over here working on one of the largest single-page JavaScript apps in the entire world. You know, it's... It's some fun whiplash there, but that's kind of where my open source contributions have ended up being at this point, because that's where work is and the stuff I'm doing in Rust and Swift and Elm on the side is not yet at a point where I need to be contributing back because everything actually just works for me right now. I'm sure I'll hit those points, Mm. but I'm early enough along in that side work that it's not actually an issue so far. Yeah, and that actually raises a question in my mind that, you know, a lot of the big companies do have kind of an open source group or an open source presence, Mm -hmm. but it makes me wonder, like, I guess, is it actually desirable for them to do that? You know, is it actually Mm -hmm. beneficial Mm -hmm. because it's like Facebook puts out an open source project and yeah, other people can contribute to it, but obviously the open source contributors are not going to have, the same kind of time or bandwidth as the full-time Facebook engineers who are actually working on it. And it also just right. means those Facebook engineers, since they're in charge of the project, have to handle triage and handling issues and stuff like that. And it's, in a sense, work that just probably didn't have to happen if it was a closed source piece of <laughs> software, you know? Yeah. Anyways, that was just a, a question with what you were talking about that brought to mind for me. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one. I think a lot of it does come down to governance models and governance models are sometimes held up Mm. as though they can solve the whole thing and they can't. And as the Rust community is learning, if you're successful, governance models that work when you're a small project have to change and adapt because they they won't necessarily work as effectively when you're large. And even for Ember.js, that's a struggle. I mean, Ember.js's framework core team, and Ember has a number of core teams for framework, for CLI tooling, for learning, as well as a steering committee that provides input to and receives input from all of those. But the framework core team is over a dozen people. It's a lot of work to collaborate and coordinate across a bunch of different companies with different interests. And I, I think they're interesting in illuminating things that come out of comparing for example, React and Ember and Angular and Vue in the front-end ecosystem. So each of those has a fairly different governance model. React is 100% owned by Facebook. Other people's contributions are very welcome, but at the end of the day, Facebook is going to do what Facebook needs to do for React successfully. Vue has sort of a benevolent dictator for life model with a lot of active input and contribution from the community, but it's much more that BDFL model. Angular is much more like React in that it is Google-owned and driven, but I think actually even less open to community contribution. React's leadership cares a lot about and does a good job making sure that they're delivering on what Facebook needs. And that means that sometimes you'll have things that show up after nine months of internal incubation in Facebook and basically show up fully formed with an RFC to go with them. Google, from what I've seen, and to be fair, I, I'm i much less engaged with Angular than I am even with React, but that seems to be much more Google-driven and much less we want 
contribution, et cetera. And then Ember is very much community owned. So while LinkedIn is one of the largest contributors to Ember and employs a fair number of Ember core team and whatnot, we don't own Ember. And if we show up with an idea and the rest of the framework core team says no, well, that's that. We can go implement a library that implements it for us or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be part of Ember if it doesn't get traction with the community more broadly. And those different governance models have different trade-offs. So one way in which the Facebook model is easier is if Facebook identifies we need this thing, they can just go do it. And they're likely to get good feedback. And likewise, with the Google model or even the BDFL model that Evan Yu has from view. Now, in in both the view and react models, those take community input seriously. And so if the community has serious concerns, they want to hear those. And I suspect the Angular leadership does as well. But it is a different dynamic there. Whereas from our point of view, we have this dual tension here of we want to be good open source citizens, and we don't own these projects. LinkedIn doesn't own Ember CLI TypeScript, the integration layer between Ember and TypeScript. And LinkedIn doesn't own Ember Core. And we're major contributors to it, and our concerns are taken seriously. But we need to be good citizens. We can't go stomp on. And I mean, spoilers, none of us also want to go stomp on that. Part of the reason a lot of us came to LinkedIn is because we have this governance model and this relationship between LinkedIn and the community. And we like that, and not, we wouldn't be there if LinkedIn didn't have that. But also, at the same time, my job is not to just go figure out what the best open source solution is. My job is actually to solve LinkedIn's problems in a way that is a good mesh for both. My concerns, first and foremost, have to be, I'm an infrastructure engineer working on an application. If I'm not actually delivering good value to that application, I'm not doing my job. And so to get back to that very first point about how I think about open source work and think about work and vocation and calling in general, there's a there's a really interesting thing to think about what faithfulness looks like there of making sure that I'm actually delivering business value to my employer on the things that my employer needs me to deliver business value on. So for me directly, that means I'm trying to make developers more productive, happier, ship fewer bugs, and thereby indirectly, but really meaningfully, help LinkedIn make money and make its users happier via the app I work on. And if all the open source stuff in the world is awesome, but I haven't done that, then I'm not doing my job well. And in a very direct sense, I think I'm not honoring God in the doing of it. And that's a a real challenge, I think, Mm. for those of us who do love open source and do care about seeing open source succeed. When it gets coupled into, as you brought up, that relationship with the business community and the business dynamics there, because it becomes a struggle to say, what does fidelity look like in terms of fidelity to philosophical commitments I have, whatever those may be, about how open source should behave and how it should function and what it should look like, and therefore the kinds of solutions we might need to deliver, technical, social, or otherwise. And also being faithful to honor my employer who's paying me to do this work to actually make sure that the needs that my employer has are being met by the open source work I'm doing, that it's not just doing the thing because it's fun or interesting or scratches an itch or even seems like the best thing to do, but that I'm making sure 
doing the best thing in open source and doing the best thing for my employer fit together well. And that's good hard work to be done. And sometimes it comes down to saying no to things. Sometimes it comes down to saying yes, but not now to things. I mean, the work I'm starting on now, I really would have liked to be doing this time last year. But there were other things that were more important in terms of delivering that value to the company. So we just sat down in a meeting and I ultimately said, look, my recommendation is we punt this until we've checked off these things. And that meant I spent nine months basically doing zero open source work. And I really would have liked to be doing that open source work, but it wasn't the right fit. And so those are kind of as an individual contributor and even to some extent organizationally. But then to turn it a bit and look at it from the costs to an open source project, on the one hand, you get the benefits of having contributions coming in and contributions coming in from people solving real problems day in and day out. And that's really valuable. It's very easy as maintainer of a library or a framework to solve problems that aren't your users' actual problems that are just like interesting technical problems, but you know don't actually provide any value to anyone using your library or framework versus getting that feedback of, oh, day-to-day, this is what people working on Rust find the most pain in from the compiler. Let's fix that versus an academic research language where you can just say, this is an interesting unsolved problem in computer science. Maybe I can move the the ball down the field a little bit for that. Those are very different kinds of things. And open source communities can choose, and I think in many ways need to consciously choose what their focus is going to be. Is it going to be research? Is it going to be primarily you know, my own itches to scratch? Or is it primarily going to be hey, we're here to solve problems for this kind of enterprise user, or we're here to solve problems for this kind of small business user, because those might have very different constraints on them. And you're going to make very different optimizations, both in terms of what you build, but also the mechanics of how you build it, what your governance structures look like. Because look, at the end of the day, if you're mostly serving Fortune 500 companies who are building dashboards, your use cases look different than if you're trying to be a startup accelerant. And you can see that even in the approaches to projects like Java versus Ruby on Rails uh, and some of the major Java projects. And it's sort of conventional at this point in a lot of open source communities to point and laugh at Java and how slowly they move and the kind of stodginess of enterprise open source software. But the reality is there are reasons for those things. And those reasons involve the cost of migrations at the scale of thousands and thousands of developers and millions of lines of code versus what you can do when you're a startup bootstrapping to get off the ground and your primary constraint is velocity. Those things matter. So it was a good thing for Ruby on Rails to be there for Twitter to use to get off the ground. And it was also a good thing for them to be able to pivot over and rewrite in Java when they hit problems of scale. Now, we can talk about whether Twitter's existence is a good thing in the large at all, but in the narrow, (laughs) spoilers, I don't have any active Twitter presence anymore. I don't have any active Facebook presence anymore. I barely even have an active LinkedIn presence, perhaps ironically, anymore. But in the narrow technical sense, Sometimes it's easy to say, well, everything should be like Rails or everything should be like React or everything should be like whatever. And in reality, I think 
Java having the kind of stability that it has, same thing for .NET, is enormously valuable, even though it frankly drives me personally up the wall. It's frustrating to me because of the kind of engineer I am. I was a guy who was jumping on Rust and podcasting about it less than six months after Rust 1.0 came out. I wasn't quite as bleeding edge as the people who were there and excited about it pre-Rust 1.0. But I do think that it behooves open source communities to ask who are our customers, even if they're not paying us money, who are our contributors going to be like, who are we targeting for that? Who do we want to serve? Who do we want to optimize for? And if your answer is a bunch of Fortune 500 companies, your answers will necessarily look different or should at least necessarily look different than if you're optimizing for little startups or companies with a dozen engineers who want to stay companies of a dozen engineers who like staying small and agile that way. And so I don't think there are necessarily right or wrong spaces there in terms of the, the health of various open source ecosystems, but there are real and serious trade-offs and you have to be explicit in making those trade-offs. What I just said could be misconstrued as saying, I don't think there are right or wrong moves in open source governance in general. And I, I actually do think there are right and wrong moves there. To our earlier discussion, fostering abusive communities is a wrong move in that space. And there are other things you could get into with more nuance about the kind of technologies you want to foster building at all. Are they user-focused or are they means of empowering rapacious capitalism? And I put it that way because I like markets, but there are ways of approaching these kinds of things, even in open source, that can be for good or for ill in that space. And I think we should think about those. I don't mean to say that, but I do mean to say that there are, in terms of who your customers are, what kinds of organizations you're trying to serve, and therefore, in terms of what kinds of contributions you're aiming to get, those I don't think necessarily have ethical, clear yes or no, this is good or bad. It's rather that operating ethically in those contexts is going to require different things of you as a project, and you should be clear-eyed about that from the outset as you seek to operate ethically in those contexts. Which is, I guess, not answers, but even bigger, harder questions. <laughs> yeah, you seem to raise a lot of those, which is which is good. I wanted to to pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about stuff I've read on what you yeah. posted about rewrite the the side yeah. project you're working on, because uh, especially that I think a recent post you made where you were kind of enumerating all the different possibilities in which this project could be funded. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it seemed like you still want to keep it open, but then of course there's licensing yeah. issues there. You know, it'd be certainly an issue if some company just took the open source code and just made their own, forked it and right. started charging for it. Right. But like, how do you, yeah, you know, it really just seemed like there was no easy answer if you really wanted to keep the project yeah. open source. Yeah. Like I... I, I'm mostly just really interested <laughs> to figure out how you consolidate right. that because it seems like if you crack that, you know, that's probably in and of itself worth yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> so one, let me spell that out a little bit for listeners. I actually haven't open sourced the code yet because of these constraints that I'm still trying to figure mm -hmm. out how to navigate. The project is 
trying to build a research writing application. There are lots of really good writing applications. There are lots of good note-taking applications. There are lots of all-right reference management applications. There's nothing that pulls them all together into a coherent, unified workflow. This project is massive. It intimidates the heck out of me. I don't know how I'm ever going to finish it. But leaving that aside, I also, as listeners may have gathered, I think a lot about and care a lot about open source. And I think there's value, as someone wrote back to me in actually response to the newsletter issue that you're referring to, there's value in things being open source because if it doesn't fit your needs, you can make it fit your needs. You can you can fork it. You can change the UI. You can do those things, and that's that really is enormously valuable. It's also valuable for people to be able to say, "Hey, I found this bug and fix it." It's also valuable just for learning. I, like I said, didn't have a formal background in CS. I had to teach myself a lot, and especially as I came into working in web development, I taught myself a ton by looking at websites that I liked and seeing how does this work? What is the HTML like here? What is the CSS here? Here's an interesting piece of JavaScript. What is it What is it actually doing? Can I read it and figure out what it does? And in a compiled native application, you don't have that. But if the source is open, you do have that. And a lot of the most helpful things I've learned so far in trying to pick up Swift and things like that have been looking at open source applications. A wonderful example of which is NetNewsWire, which is an open source RSS client for macOS and iOS that is 100% free, 100% open source, and you can just go read it and learn from it from a bunch of very good Mac and iOS developers. So there's a lot of reasons why I want it to be open source. And even though I would like ultimately to for this to be a successful project and product for me, I would like someday to be making my living from this product. You know, we'll talk in a decade and see if I've gotten there. But I also would like it to be the case that if you want to fork it, you can do so. If you are a student, you can just build it yourself. If you're just a motivated hacker, you can build it yourself and run it. That'd be fine. I think. Uh, but what I really don't want, okay, right, so there, there is. And what I really, really don't want is, okay, this thing I've just described, obviously a huge market for it would be academic contexts. And guess what? Licensing to academic institutions is a very good possible means of generating ongoing revenue for an application where it's like, yeah, we bought an institutional license for this. Anybody who works at university, insert, you know, whatever, state university or private university can just use this. You're a student here, you can just use this. And that becomes really, really valuable revenue stream. Unless it's open source licensed in such a way that university looks at it and it's like, we'll just hire somebody to set up a build pipeline for us once and just automatically deliver this installation to all of our users. And you're like, well, there went that revenue stream. On the flip side of it, as I outlined in that same newsletter issue, from an ethics point of view, if someone finds and fixes a bug, how do I compensate them for that? Because to get at some of those things we talked about early in this discussion, People's time matters. It's valuable. I don't want to take it for granted. And so part of the problem for me is saying, hey, if this is an open source project, 
do I allow contributions? Do I say, no, you can't fix this bug that is affecting a dozen users because I don't have a means for compensating you? Like, if I set up a means for compensating people, how does managing that work? Do I want this to be a thing where I'm managing an open source project? Or, you know, maybe a model there is you have a dual licensing scheme where you can use it for personal use only, but if you're an institution, you have to pay for license, et cetera. And you basically treat it as dump the source every so often, the way Apple dumps the source for the Darwin kernel every so often. Like that's open source and it is meaningfully open source. It's not open source in the way the the word has come to be framed in a lot of discussions where it's open to contribution, where it's open communally. But I mean, if you go back to, Richard Stallman's original complaint that he couldn't fix his printer, it solves that problem. Like it literally solves the original problem that free software set out to solve. And I think sometimes we get hung up on other constraints there about like it has to be viral. And, you know, we could talk about viral licenses or not. If you want some really good reading, read Kyle E. Mitchell, who is not your lawyer, he'll note, uh, on his website, but does some really, really interesting work and writing on the legal side of open source licenses and what they do and don't do effectively and can and can't do effectively. And I don't agree with him on everything philosophically, but he's a very interesting and very illuminating read on the legal side of open source software. And especially about kinds of licenses that people are trying to develop to solve these kinds of problems, as well as to tackle problems around things like, hey, we open sourced this and now Amazon is running it at scale and charging people for it. Oh, crap. We don't have any way to make money anymore. And Amazon is making all the money off of our open source. How do we solve that? Which is, again, five minutes of me talking to say, I have no idea how to solve these problems. I have things that I might try at some point, but I don't know. And I think they're problems that need solving because I think there is a good in the source being open that is worth retaining. But at the same time, and I think this is profoundly, to borrow a term from academia and other contexts, I think it's profoundly under-theorized and under-researched and understudied. We don't have good models for how you can have people make a living and feed their families and have open source. And people are starting to come up with interesting ideas there. Tailwind CSS and Tailwind UI are a good example of people building a layer on top of it and selling that at a relatively reasonable price and then using that as a way of funding ongoing open source development and work and teaching work and whatnot. But there is no generic solution for these things. And maybe one of the takeaways is to say, There are no generic solutions for these things. You're going to have to think hard about it. You're going to have to resolve it on a project-by-project basis. And perhaps part of the problem is that we want one-and-done solutions, one-off licenses that can solve all these problems, rather than a proliferation of many licenses that are tailored to narrow use cases. And I think investing in research in that direction is perhaps one of the most important things that open source advocates and aficionados can do over the next decade. We need a lot more there. GPL, network GPL, Afro GPL, et cetera, they're not good enough. MIT is not good enough. They're not specific enough. They're not detailed enough, and they don't address the variations that exist between different kinds of open source well enough. 
Yeah, uh, thanks for the recommendation. I've actually been thinking I need to get someone who works on the legal side of Yeah, if you could get him on, that would be amazing. Um, And I would probably be, you know, alternating, yes, no, yes, no, listening to that episode. But those are the best episodes. (laughs) The thing you mentioned with Tailwind, it is a little bit like a generic framework called Tori.studio. I don't know if you looked into it, if you heard of it. A little bit apparently allows you to write your application as if it were a web application and it will take that and turn it into a native mm-hmm. binary that is apparently by their words extremely performant i don't know if that would be and maybe you're far along in in bootstrapping rewrite that's already like no this is you know the timing is just off you know i already have all this work yeah. and i don't want to toss it but yeah it's an interesting project and i haven't dug deeply into it they're interestingly licensed MIT and MIT Apache. So I'm really curious what, if any, business sustainability model they have or how that'll work for them. I think from from what I could see, they're actually leveraging on teaching this mm-hmm. like as i saw on the website yeah. there's a whole like textbook that the the people who worked on it are writing and so yeah. if you want to use it you, you want to figure it out yourself go for it but if you want to buy books like here's you our official book yeah <laughs> and i i think that is one of the better established models the red hat style model of you pay for support for it if you're a sufficiently large organization using it is also pretty reasonable another one that's worth looking at that I'm very curious to see how it goes long-term is Onivim. Uh, Their licensing model is on, I believe an 18 month delay model where contributions are initially all open source contributions are immediately MIT licensed and things that come in from the purchased version of the product are basically time locked. They become open source 18 months after they land if you want immediate access to them you pay for access if you want to just wait you'll get the stuff when it lands in 18 months now there's an enormous amount of tooling that you have to build to make that work and i have no idea how that's going to play for them long term but it's interesting at least and i think it's viable as for tari with uh rewrite at an implementation level it's vaguely interesting but at the end of the day I just want to write native across all the way as well as a web app but for a lot of reasons, one being performance, but another just being to keep broadening my own skill set because I've spent the last six years or so working almost entirely web stack and I'm getting that itch of I want to know and dig into other things as well. So it's a many reasons kind of thing, but I'm glad you shared it with me because it's very interesting and I'm very curious how some of the things they claim shake out and work. Super interesting. Cool. This probably seems like a good spot to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me. This was definitely very interesting for sure. And My pleasure. Um, I guess the last thing, I really quick thing I wanted to mention was also I learned a lot from your How the Sausage is Made New Rustation <laughs> podcast and good. certainly imbibed some of the tips to be like, oh, okay, you know, as a podcast neophyte, this is, some, this is gold right here. I am so glad. Yeah, so certainly it affected me. That concludes my conversation with Chris. You can contact Chris via his website, chriskreischer.com. You can reach us at the email humansofopensource at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at humansofoss. That concludes this episode of Humans of Open Source. Thank you so much for tuning in.
We'll see you in the next one.